Philip de Courcy um, tells the story in one of his books of Daniel Boone, the great American uh, frontiersman. Daniel Boone was uh, a great hero. It is said that uh, he was once returning from the uncharted forest. No one had been out that way. He was returning from the uncharted forest that were beyond the Kentucky River. And when he came back, he was asked by a lady if he had ever been lost. The famous scout replied, I cannot say I was ever lost, ma'am, but I was bewildered for three days. <laughs> right now, where we are, where we're living in these days, we may not be lost, but there's a lot of bewilderment. All of the things that have been in place, all of the foundational principles, they're under attack and they're being destroyed. Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? These are bewildering times. It's bewildering as we look outside the church. It's bewildering even as we look inside the church. This is a men's Bible study, and... We, we talk often in here about what it means to be a Christian man. We talk about what Scripture says is masculinity, what it means to be a God-fearing man, what it means to be a follower of Christ. We live in a culture, you say the word masculinity, it, uh, they don't want to hear it. And if they ever refer to it, they won't refer to it without putting the word toxic in front of it because that is the common thread. That's the common narrative. And let's face it, there are a lot of toxic men out there who have done a lot of damage. Uh, some who are just out-and-out out pagans, some who are in the church who are absolute hypocrites but they can sure talk the game and they know all the words to all the hymns and they've been in church all their lives, but they're, ap they're just, they're mouth Christians, just mouth. Big hat, no cattle. They're just professing Christians, but there's no heart, there's no life, there's no integrity. They talk a good game, but you get up close and they're just flat out liars. They're just flat out hypocrites. They live differently than what they espouse with their words. That's, that's toxic. Now, that's not biblical masculinity. There's a lot of bewilderment, I think, inside the church in regard to masculinity and what it is and what the model of masculinity is. So how do we respond to this and how do we live our lives and how do we navigate this? It's all very bewildering as Christian men. You know, really, what all these issues, I don't care what the issue is, it all comes down to navigating this, to getting through it. It all comes down to who is your authority. We have people on different sides of issues, and these issues split families, and these issues split churches, and they split Christians. And you'll hear in discussions, and even as the voices get raised and get heated, uh, well, experts say, experts say, what's an expert? They are considered an authority. 
Psalm 1 said, How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You want to know where your experts stand in regard to God and in regard to Scripture. I got to decide who's my authority. As a Christian man, who's my authority? So even in the church, and I'm kind of switching gears here, there is this debate going on about what is masculinity, what is Christian manhood. So I usually have two or three books going at a time. There's a very popular book right now called Gentle and Lowly uh, by Dane Ortland, and uh, it's biblical, but he's got a take on some things that are... I think debatable, biblically. This comes from Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, you will find, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And his point is that this is the one place in Scripture where we really get a glimpse into the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the point that he's making at the beginning of the book. Then he goes on and says, meek, humble, gentle. And then he says, Jesus is not trigger happy. Well, whoever, whoever said he was, of course he's not trigger happy. And then he says, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. Well, at times he was harsh. You are of your father, the devil. That might fit into that harsh category. He goes on and says, he is the most understanding person in the universe. That's true. He is. Absolutely. Psalm 139 says, he understands my thought from afar. He understands me when I don't understand myself. He goes on and says, the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Well, I would say biblically both of those are true because many times he pointed a finger. Many times. But he also says, come unto me. And he who comes to me, I will in no no way, turn away. You can always come to Christ. You, you, you can never out-sin accessibility to him. doesn't matter what you've done. He goes on and says, gentle and lowly, this according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is, tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. Those things are all true about him. If we were asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. I wonder if the Pharisees would agree on that. Jesus? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. What a great guy. What a nice guy. Yeah, that's why we killed him. Couldn't stand the niceness. 
He just, uh, he just got on their nerves. He was so accommodating. No, they ate his guts. Why? Because he pointed a finger at them, and he told them the truth. He goes on and says, if Jesus hosted his own personal website, the most prominent line of the about me drop, drop down would read, gentle and lowly in heart. I don't think so. Is it a part of Christ? Yeah. Is it the emphasis? I don't think it is biblically. So I'm reading this book, and then I pick up a book by John MacArthur called Jesus Unleashed. Subtitle, A New Vision of the Bold Confrontations of Christ and Why They Matter. This is so well said. MacArthur writes in the preface, try to imagine a Bible teacher so devoted to the truth that he never misses an opportunity to confront false teachers and refute their errors. He exposes and rebukes religious hypocrisy wherever he sees it. He is not an insider as far as the current power structure is concerned. He doesn't have any of the customary credentials, but advanced degrees and exalted titles do not intimidate him. He is, if anything, more forthright and severe with the priestly elite than with unschooled lay people, and he never shies away from controversy. Someone like that would be despised and rejected by today's evangelical Christians especially by the movement's most influential leaders. He's talking about evangelical believers, people in Bible churches, churches that say we're built on the Word of God. They would do their best to muzzle him and check his influence, even if they agreed with his views, because in this postmodern era of tolerance and diversity, agreeability is deemed a higher virtue than faithfulness in pursuit of biblical truth. But the person in the above description is Jesus. He was deliberately provocative. He was passionate for the truth and therefore fiercely indignant against the religious hypocrisy and unbiblical doctrine of false teachers, especially the leading Pharisees. They wore a genteel scholarly disguise and demanded his respect. He was relentlessly harsh with them. And he was, that's accurate. It seems most evangelicals in the current generation would prefer a more domesticated, deferential Messiah. They want him to be passive, polite, politically correct, and always, always pleasant. Any suggestion that our Lord might ever be angry or argumentative poses a severe challenge to the image they have created in their imaginations. They must at all costs keep Jesus subdued and make him safe. But Scripture stresses, now catch this, Scripture stresses that Jesus spoke and taught as one having authority. Matthew 7, 29. Unrestrained, assertive, and at times angry. Is this good or what? Is it good? It's wise. It's balanced. And he goes on and says, Yes, it's true that Jesus is merciful, gracious, and sympathetic to our weaknesses. Of course it is, Hebrews 4.15. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. It's 5.2 of Hebrews. He is portrayed in prophetic imagery as a lamb and also as a tender shepherd. 
So, of course, Jesus can be tender, and of course he can be gentle. When that's what's needed, that's who he is, and that's what he does. He's our model of Christian manhood. You see? So we want to emulate Jesus. We take our cues from him. He goes on and says, but Jesus is also depicted in Scripture as a lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5.5. He is not to be muzzled or declawed. It is pure blasphemy to imagine that toning him down would somehow improve his character, make him seem nicer, or elevate his glory. Then he says this, my objective in this book is to highlight the boldness and power of Jesus by examining the, the intensity of his interaction with the Pharisees, listening as he speaks for himself without attempting to soften or censor anything. Closing paragraph, the C.S. Lewis wrote about Aslan, the Messiah figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. He isn't safe, but he is good. That's brilliant. That's Jesus. He's not safe, oh, but he's good. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, these are three addresses he gave, this great, great expositor of the Word of God in Britain who died in 1981. This guy could have been prime minister of Britain. Absolutely brilliant. Graduated from medical school in London by the time he was, as I recall, 19 or 20. Was handpicked by the physician to the queen to assist him. I mean, he was known as a young man in his 20s in the medical field. He wound up becoming a pastor at the age of 27 because he had been involved with uh, Lord Horder, the physician to the queen and to all the royal family. And he had gone with Lord Horder every day dealing with these upper crust, royal family, the cream of the cream, and he began to see how empty their lives were. And he began to realize in his own life, his own life, he began to realize how much he needed the great physician, and then he began to realize how much they needed the great physician. He wound up becoming a pastor. He did a series of addresses on authority. He says this, just one paragraph. If we could but stand back and just look at the New Testament and the whole Bible with fresh eyes, I believe we would be rather amazed at the fact that the really big claim which is made in the whole of the New Testament is for the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. If what they say about Jesus is not true, then they have nothing much at all to offer us. Authority. That's the issue. Let me give you some verses on authority. And then we're going right into John 1 and 2. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Matthew 9, 6, he claimed the authority to forgive sins. You had this man who was paralyzed and Jesus looks at the guy and says, your sins are forgiven. And the first, what, what, you're blaspheming. He wasn't blaspheming. He's God. How can God blaspheme God? Just to show you my authority? 
He said, get up. The guy was instantaneously healed. But see, he had the authority to heal. He had the, he had the authority to forgive sin because he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So why would you not check in with him when you're bewildered? We judge all authorities by his authority. The believers, uh, the, the Jews at Berea were more noble than those at Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. This is the ultimate authority right here. This is the book above every book. This is the word of God. It's the word of Christ. In John 1.12, he clearly states that he had the authority to save. He has the authority to forgive sin. He has the authority. He has the authority to save people from their sin in John 1.12. In John 5.27, he has the authority to judge all men. And he will judge all men because all judgment has been given to the Son. The big mantra of our day is don't judge me, don't judge me. We're all going to be judged. You can't avoid it. And, and there is something right and everything being judged because there was so much injustice. Is there not? There is incredible injustice. We want things to be made right. Sometimes they're made right to a degree. Other times people continually do wrong. They continually do evil and they get off scot-free because of who they are, because of their connections, because of their power, because of their backroom connections they just do whatever they want and there's no accountability and they just skate they lie kill cheat they do whatever they want and it's so frustrating if you forget that all judgment's been given to the son he doesn't always judge immediately but no one escapes judgment no one and the option that is given by christ is you can come to me in repentance and I will be your savior or you can harden your heart and deny me and I will be your judge. In John 10, 18, he has authority over life and death. In John 17, 2, he has authority over all mankind. So now, We've got two points in the outline tonight. First one is this, the facts of his authority. And secondly, the acts of his authority. The facts of his authority and the acts of his authority. If you remember last week, I quoted from this book, The Christian Mind by Harry Blamires. He says this, for the secularist, God and theology are the playthings of the mind. For the Christian, God is real. And Christian theology describes his truth revealed to us in Scripture. For the secular mind, religion is essentially a matter of theory. Watch this. For the Christian mind, Christianity is a matter of acts and facts. That's it. The acts and facts which are the basis of our faith are recorded in the Bible. So, we're just going to pull out a couple. John 1.1 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus, as we'll see in a minute. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right out of the blocks, 
right out of the blocks, it's declared that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word. What does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus existed before the beginning because he's God. That's all the way going through in John. That is the purpose of this gospel. In fact, flip to John 20, and there is a very clear purpose statement given as to why John is writing. Verse 30 and 31 of John 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John's going to give us seven signs. He's going to give us seven miracles in John out of all the miracles that Jesus did. There were days when Jesus did hundreds of miracles. He goes on and says, but these have been written, what I've done in this gospel, these have been written, watch this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you may believe he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Uh, in 2125, he says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would, that would be written. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Three, all things came into being through him. So he's the creator God. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Then go down to 14. And the Word became flesh, flesh like we've got. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was God the primary agent of creation, and he became the God-man. Those are facts. I'm not sure I did this. If I, if I skipped over Matthew 10, 1, I don't want to do that. He had authority over Satan and the demons. He cast them out. And he still has that authority. You know, Jesus is the Lion of Judah, but it also says in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan goes around like a roaring lion. But Jesus is the lion alliance. Satan is created. Jesus isn't created. Satan is the god of this world, but Jesus owns him. And as Martin Luther said, He's a pit bull, but he's on a chain. So the facts of his authority, he's God. He's the ultimate authority. Secondly, you've got the acts of his authority. The acts, that's, that's in John 2. There's going to be a sign. It's the first miracle that Jesus does publicly. It says in John 2, 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, and these weddings would go like seven days. I mean, some of you guys have daughters. You know what it is to go bankrupt. And they got a little bit of a problem because verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. That, that seems rude, kind of abrasive. It wasn't. 
What he was saying is, I'm, I'm beginning my public ministry. That's basically what he was saying. He wasn't rude to his mother. But he was on another agenda now. Uh, up until now, he had been a carpenter in a shop, showing up every day, small business, making payroll. He didn't go to the gym. He didn't have to go to the gym. He cut his own trees. He planed his own wood. He was in shape. She wasn't bothered by it. She said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. That's after they took the stone water pots and filled the water pots with water in six and seven. He said to them, so after they fill these water pots, now draw some out, take it to the head waiter. They took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was an act of his authority. When he turned the water into wine, it was an act of his authority as God. And verse 11 says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He's God. Now, in 13, he's going to take a trip. He's going up to Passover in Jerusalem. So see, there's two acts of authority in John 2. So the first one is his his authority over creation, turning the water into wine. The second one, Jesus is going to put his authority into action by cleansing the temple of religious hypocrisy. He's going to take them on. This is right out of the blocks in his public ministry. And I may have said it last week, but when you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the openings tend to be similar. You have the birth of Christ. You, you have John the Baptist. And then you get to the end of the gospel, and you'll have his arrest. You'll have his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. In between, in between that intro and the ending, you know what you primarily got? He's using his authority to confront the religious leaders. And he would do miracles and show his compassion to those whose lives were busted up. Fourteen. So look at the transition from 13 to 14. I'm about done here. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. This was a religious, bureaucratic machine. The, you had the different groups. You had the Pharisees. You had the Sadducees. They were two different parties. They did not get along. They... Um, 
they were at odds with each other. But they had this system in place that they said was based on the Old Testament law. But what had happened is that different religious teachers had taken the Old Testament law and added to it, well, that means this, and that means this, and that means this. In other words, they took things that were not clearly laid out in the Old Testament law, and they added to them, and they made them as binding and as authoritative as Old Testament law. So they had all these rules and regulations and stuff that wasn't from the Lord. And so people would come to the temple for Passover, and it was long distances for many of them. They couldn't bring their animals. So they had some guys that just, well, we'll sell you animals. And it wasn't Costco. And you paid a premium. And then you had the money changers because you also had to buy animals and they'd take only a certain currency and then they had to pay a temple tax and they had a system. And you know how those systems, those bureaucratic systems work? Everyone's getting a cut. And these guys are enriching themselves. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Now watch this. And he made a scourge of flowers. And got a Hallmark card. So what it says. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, when he did this, he was absolutely under control as was referred to earlier, he didn't have a hair trigger. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. Because this was his father's house. And he just goes in and he takes over. And he had no credentials. Well, who, who, who is this guy? Is he a Sadducee? Is he a Pharisee? Is he a Herodian? I mean, who is, I mean, who is he? Who is he with? Where do you go to school? Where do you go to seminary? I mean, who's this congressman? I mean, what's the, who is this guy? He, he just goes in and does it. He was measured. He did exactly what he wanted to do. Interesting, no one took him on. Why is that? Because he didn't buy his lumber at Home Depot. He was in shape. No one took him on. They were scared. They were looking for the exits. The Jews then said to him, after, you know, he clears out the temple, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Well, yeah, here's my card from the uh, Sanhedrin. Here's my uh, papers from the Sadducees. Here's my, what does he say? They say, what's your authority? They want to know, well, how'd you get this authority? And basically what he's going to say is, I'm God. That's my authority. And they didn't get it. Because he answered it this way. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, fast forward to the end of the Gospels. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. 
This is Jesus. These are the acts. This is the facts. He is God, and he has all authority. And as we're attempting to navigate what's before us, things we have never encountered, things we've never dealt with, things we never thought we would deal with, listen, right now, if things keep going the way they're going, you could lose your ability to work. You could use your abil- lose your ability to provide for your family. You could be canceled if things keep going the way that they potentially could go. And why would they not go this way? Because Jesus said in the last days, lawlessness will increase. Well, we've had this lawlessness. Well, maybe it's going to back off. That's not what he said. He said it's going to increase. It's going to keep going the wrong way. So it may be you won't even be able to go from state to state. That's being thrown out. It may be you may not be able to get on a plane. It may be you'll lose your job. It may be this is the United States of America, but we're in decline. And we have morally insane leaders who will do anything to hold on to power. And they are of their father, the devil. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But Jesus said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That's what he said. So we don't have to be bewitched. We just have to get under the authority, read the authority, and trust him. And he'll navigate us one day at a time. And I'll tell you something. I wouldn't trade places with anybody to have his guidance and to have his eye upon my life. And neither should you. So, Father, we thank you for your authority. We thank you for Jesus, what he did. He came. He laid aside his privileges. Philippians 2 said, he took on the form of a bondservant. He, he went to the cross for us. He was without sin. He gave himself up for us so that we might have peace with you and might be in your family and adopted forever. I pray for those who are at their wit's end right now. Don't let them lose hope. Don't let them lose hope, Lord. As the psalmist said at 130, in your word do I hope. And we hope in your word because it's your word and it has authority. Encourage us. Help us to sleep tonight. Help us to rest. Some guys in here haven't slept for nights and nights. Give us rest. Because you love us and you get your eye on us and you have compassion on us, and you know that we need all these things. We can trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.